Chapter Forty of the Breaking Point by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Leslie Ward had found the autumn extremely tedious. His old passion for Nina now and then flamed up in him, but her occasional coquetries no longer deceived him. They had their source only in her vanity. She exacted his embraces only as a tribute to her own charm, her youth, her fresh young body. And Nina, out of her setting of gaiety, of a thumping piano, of chattering giggling crowds, of dancing and bridge and theatre boxes, was a queen dethroned. She did not read or think. She spent the leisure of her mourning period in long hours before her mirror, fussing with her hair, in trimming and retrimming hats, or in the fastidious care of her hands and body. He was ashamed sometimes of his pitilessly clear analysis of her. She was not discontented, save at the enforced sombreness of their lives. She had found in marriage what she wanted, a good house, daintily served, a man to respond to her attractions as a woman, and to provide for her needs as a wife, dignity and an established place in the world, liberty and privilege. But she was restless. She chafed at the quiet evenings they spent at home, and resented the reading in which she took refuge from her uneasy fidgeting. For heaven's sake, Nina, sit down and read, or sew, or do something. You've been at that window a dozen times. I'm not bothering you. Go on and read. When nobody dropped in, she would go upstairs and spend the hour or so before bedtime, in the rites of cold cream, massage, and in placing the little combs of what Leslie had learned was called a water-wave. But her judgment was as clear as his, and even more pitiless. The difference between them lay in the fact that while he rebelled, she accepted the situation. She was cleverer than he was. Her mind worked more quickly, and she had the adaptability he lacked. If there were times when she wearied him, there were others when he sickened her. Across from her at the table he ate slowly and enormously. He splashed her dainty bathroom with his loud, gasping, cold baths. He flung his soiled clothing anywhere. He drank whiskey at night and crawled into the lavender-scented sheets redolent of it, to drop into a heavy sleep and snore till she wanted to scream. But she played the game to the limit of her ability. Then, seeing that they might go on the rocks, he made a valiant effort, and since she recognized it as an effort, she tried to meet him halfway. They played two-handed card games. He read aloud to her, poetry which he loathed and she to him, short stories he hated. He suggested country walks, and she agreed to limp back after half a mile or so in her high-heeled pumps. He concealed his boredom from her, but there were nights when he lay awake long after she was asleep, and looked ahead into a future of unnumbered blank evenings. He had formerly taken an occasional evening at his club, but on his suggesting it now, Nina's eyes would fill with suspicion, and he knew that although she never mentioned Beverly Carlyle, she would neither forget nor entirely trust him again, and in his inner secret soul he knew that she was right. He had thought that he had buried that brief madness, but there were times when he knew he lied to himself. One fiction, however, he persisted in. He had not been infatuated with Beverly. It was only that she gave him during those few days something he had not found at home, companionship and quiet, intelligent talk. She had been restful. Nina was never restful. He bought a New York paper daily, and read it in the train. 
The Valley had opened to success in New York and had settled for a long run. The reviews of her work had been extraordinary, and when now and then she gave an interview, he studied the photographs accompanying it, but he never carried the paper home. He began, however, to play with the thought of going to New York. He would not go to see her at her house, but he would like to see her before a metropolitan audience, to add his might to her triumph. There were times when he fully determined to go, when he sat at his desk with his hand on the telephone, prepared to lay the foundations of the excursion by some manipulation of business interests. For months, however, he never went further than the preliminary movement. But by October he began to delude himself with a real excuse for going, and this was the knowledge that by a strange chain of circumstances this woman who so dominated his secret thoughts was connected with Elizabeth's life through Judson Clark. The discovery communicated to him by Walter Wheeler that Dick was Clark had roused in him a totally different feeling from Nina's. He saw no glamour of great wealth. On the contrary, he saw in Clark the author of a great unhappiness to a woman who had not deserved it. And Nina, judging him with deadly accuracy, surmised even that. That he was jealous of Judson Clark and of his part in the past, he denied to himself absolutely but his resentment took the form of violent protest to the family against even allowing Elizabeth to have anything to do with Dick if he turned up. "'He'll buy his freedom if he isn't dead,' he said to Nina, "'and he'll come snivelling back here with that lost memory bunk, and they're just fool enough to fall for it.' "'I've fallen for it, and I'm at least as intelligent as you are.' Before her appraising eyes his own fell. Suppose I did something I shouldn't, and turned up here with such a story. Would you believe it? No. When you want to do something you shouldn't, you don't appear to need any excuse. But on the whole they managed to live together comfortably enough. They each had their reservations, but especially after Jim's death they tacitly agreed to stop bickering, and to make their mutual concessions. What Nina never suspected was that he corresponded with Beverly Carlyle. Not that the correspondence amounted to much. He had sent her flowers the night of the New York opening with the name of his club on his card, and she wrote there an acknowledgment. Then, later, twice he sent her books, one a biography, which was a compromise with his conscience, and later a volume of exotic love-verse, which was not. As he replied to her notes of thanks, a desultory correspondence had sprung up, letters which the world might have read, and yet which had to him the savour and interest of the clandestine. He did not know that that, and not infatuation, was behind his desire to see Beverly again, never reasoned that he was demonstrating to himself that his adventurous love-life was not necessarily ended, never acknowledged that the instinct of the hunter was as alive in him as in the days before his marriage. Partly, then, a desire for adventure, partly a hope that romance was not over but might still be waiting around the next corner, was behind his desire to see her again. Probably Nina knew that, as she knew so many things, why he had taken to reading poetry, for instance. Certain it is that when he began, early in October, to throw out small tentative remarks about the necessity of a business trip before long to New York, she narrowed her eyes. She was determined to go with him, if he went at all, and he was equally determined that she should not. It became, in a way, a sort of watchful waiting on both sides. 
Then there came a time when some slight excuse offered, and Leslie took up the shuttle for forty-eight hours, and wove his bit in the pattern. It happened to be on the same evening as Dick's return to the old house. He was a little too confident, a trifle too easy, to Nina. "'Has the handle of my suitcase been repaired yet?' he asked. He was lighting a cigarette at the time. "'Yes. Why?' I'll have to run over to New York tomorrow. I wanted Joe to go alone, but he thinks he needs me. Joe was his partner. Oh, so Joe's going. That's what I said. She was silent. Joe's going was clever of him. It gave authenticity to his business, and it kept her at home. How long shall you be gone? Only a day or two. He could not entirely keep the relief out of his voice. It had been easy, incredibly easy. He might have done it a month ago. And he had told the truth. Joe was going. I'll pack tonight and take my suitcase in with me in the morning. If you'll get your things out, I'll pack them. She was still thinking, but her tone was indifferent. You won't want your dress clothes, of course. I'd better have a dinner suit. She looked at him then with a half-contemptuous smile. Yes, she said slowly, I suppose you will. You'll be going to the theatre. He glanced away. Possibly, but we'll be rushing to get through. There's a lot to do. Amazing how business piles up when you find you're going anywhere. There won't be much time to play. She sat before the mirror in her small dressing-room that night, ostensibly preparing for bed, but actually taking stock of her situation. She had done all she could, had been faithful and loyal, had made his home attractive, had catered to his tastes and tried to like his friends, had met his needs and responded to them, and now this. She was bewildered and frightened. How did women hold their husbands? She found him in bed and unmistakably asleep when she went into the bedroom. Manlike, having got his way, he was not troubled by doubts or introspection. It was done. He was lying on his back with his mouth open. She felt a sudden and violent repugnance to getting into the bed beside him. Sometime in the night he would turn over, and throwing his arm about her, hold her close in his sleep, and it would be purely automatic, the mechanical result of habit. She lay on the edge of the bed and thought things over. He had his good qualities. He was kind and affectionate to her family. He had been wonderful when Jim died, and he loved Elizabeth dearly. He was generous and open-handed. He was handsome, too, in a big, heavy way. She began to find excuses for him. Men were always a childlike prey to some women. They were vain, and especially they were sex-vain. Good-looking men were a target for every sort of advance. She transferred her loathing of him to the woman she suspected of luring him away from her, and lay for hours hating her. She saw Leslie off in the morning with a perfunctory good-bye, while cold anger and suspicion seethed in her, and later she put on her hat and went home to lay the situation before her mother. Mrs. Wheeler was out, however, and she found only Elizabeth sewing by her window. Nina threw her hat on the bed and sat down dispiritedly. I suppose there's no news, she asked. Nina watched her. She was out of patience with Elizabeth, exasperated with the world. Are you going to go on like this all your life, she demanded, sitting by a window waiting for a man who ran away from you? That's not true, and you know it. They're all alike, Nina declared recklessly. 
They go along well enough, and they are all for virtue and for the home and fireside stuff, until some woman comes their way. I ought to know. Elizabeth looked up quickly. Why, Nina, she said, you don't mean— He went to New York this morning. He pretended to be going on business, but he's actually gone to see that actress. He's been mad about her for months. I don't believe it. Oh, wake up, Nina said impatiently. The world isn't made up of good, kind, virtuous people. It's rotten, and men are all alike, Dick Livingstone and Les and all the rest, tarred with the same stick. As long as there are women like this Carlyle creature, they'll fall for them. And you and I can sit at home and chew our nails and plan to keep them by us, and we can't do it. In spite of herself, a little question of doubt crept that day into Elizabeth's mind. She had always known that they had not told her all the truth, that the benevolent conspiracy to protect Dick extended even to her, but she had never thought that it might include a woman. Once there, the very humility of her love for Dick was an element in favor of the idea. She had never been good enough, or wise, or clever enough for him. She was too small and unimportant to be really vital. Dismissing the thought did no good. It came back. But because she was a healthy-minded and practical person, she took the one course she could think of, and put the question that night to her father, when he came back from seeing David. David had sent for him early in the evening. All day he had thought over the situation between Dick and Elizabeth, with growing pain and uneasiness. He had not spoken of it to Lucy, or to Harrison Miller. He knew that they would not understand, and that Lucy would suffer. She was bewildered enough by Dick's departure. At noon he had insisted on getting up and being helped into his trousers. So clad he felt more of a man, and better able to cope with things, although his satisfaction in them was somewhat modified by the knowledge of two safety-pins at the sides, to take up their superfluous girth at the waistband. But even the sense of being clothed as a man again did not make it easier to say to Walter Wheeler what must be said. Walter took the news of Dick's return with a visible brightening. It was as though, out of the wreckage of his middle years, he saw that there was now some salvage, but he was grave and inarticulate over it, wrung David's hand, and only said, "'Thank God for it, David!' and after a pause. Was he all right? He remembered everything? But something strange in the situation began to obtrude itself into his mind. Dick had come back twenty-four hours ago, last night, and all this time. Where is he now? He's not here, Walter. He has gone away again without seeing Elizabeth? David cleared his throat. He is still a fugitive. He doesn't himself know he isn't guilty. I think he feels that he ought not to see her until— Come, come, Walter Wheeler said impatiently. Don't try to find excuses for him. Let's have the truth, David. I guess I can stand it. Poor David, divided between his love for Dick and his native honesty, threw out his hands. I don't understand it, Wheeler, he said. You and I wouldn't, I suppose. We are not the sort to lose the world for a woman. The plain truth is that there is not a trace of Judson Clark in him today, save one. That's the woman." When Wheeler said nothing but sat twisting his hat in his hands, David went on. It might be only a phase. As its impression on Dick's youth had been deeper than others, so its effect was more lasting. It might gradually disappear. He was confident, indeed, that it would. 
He had been reading on the subject all day. Walter Wheeler hardly heard him. He was facing the incredible fact and struggling with his own problem. After a time he got up, shook hands with David, and went home, the dog at his heels. During the evening that followed he made his resolution not to tell her, never to let her suspect the truth. But he began to wonder if she had heard something, for he found her eyes on him more than once, and when Margaret had gone up to bed she came over and sat on the arm of his chair. She said an odd thing then, and one that made it impossible to lie to her later. "'I come to you a good bit as I would go to God if he were a person,' she said. "'I have got to know something, and you can tell me.' He put his arm around her and held her close. "'Go ahead, honey.' "'Daddy, do you realize that I am a woman now?' "'I try to, but it seems about six months since I was feeding you hot water for colic.' She sat still for a moment, stroking his hair and being very careful not to spoil his neat parting. "'You have never told me all about Dick, Daddy. You have always kept something back. That's true, isn't it?' "'There were details,' he said uncomfortably. "'It wasn't necessary. Here's what I want to know.' If he has gone back to the time, you know, wouldn't he go back to caring for the people he loved then? Then suddenly her childish appeal ceased, and she slid from the chair and stood before him. I must know, father. I can bear it. The thing you have been keeping from me was another woman, wasn't it? It was so long ago, he temporized. Think of it, Elizabeth, a boy of twenty-one or so. Then there was? I believe so at one time but I know positively that he hadn't seen or heard from her in ten years. What sort of woman? I wouldn't think about it, honey. It's all so long ago. Did she live in Wyoming? She was an actress, he said, hard driven by her persistence. Do you know her name? Only her stage name, honey. But you know she was an actress. He sighed. All right, dear, he said. I'll tell you all I know. She was an actress, and she married another man. That's all there is to it. She's not young now. She must be thirty now, if she's living," he added as an afterthought. It was some time before she spoke again. I suppose she was beautiful, she said slowly. I don't know. Most of them aren't off the stage. Anyhow, what does it matter now? Only that I know he has gone back to her, and you know it, too. He heard her going quietly out of the room. Long after, he closed the house and went cautiously upstairs. She was waiting for him in the doorway of her room, in her nightgown. "'I know it all now,' she said steadily. "'It was because of her he shot the other man, wasn't it?' She saw her answer in his startled face, and closed her door quickly. He stood outside, and then he tapped lightly. "'Let me in, honey,' he said. "'I want to finish it. You've got a wrong idea about it.' When she did not answer, he tried the door, but it was locked. He turned and went downstairs again. When he came home the next afternoon, Margaret met him in the hall. She knows it, Walter. Knows what? Knows he was back here and didn't see her. Annie blurted it out. She'd got it from the Oglethorpe's laundress. Mr. Oglethorpe saw him on the street. It took him some time to drag a coherent story from her. Annie had told Elizabeth in her room, and then had told Margaret. She had gone to Elizabeth at once to see what she could do, but Elizabeth had been in her closet digging among her clothes. 
She had got out her best frock and put it on, while her mother sat on the bed, not even daring to broach the matter in her mind, and had gone out. There was a sort of cold determination in her that frightened Margaret. She had laughed a good bit, for one thing. "'She's terribly proud,' she finished. "'She'll do something reckless, I'm sure. It wouldn't surprise me to see her come back engaged to Wally Sayre. I think that's where she went.' But apparently she had not, or if she had, she said nothing about it. From that time on they saw a change in her. She was as loving as ever, but she affected a sort of painful brightness that was a little hard, as though she had clad herself in armour against further suffering. End of chapter 40